Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt. In our bi-monthly podcasts, we interview philosophers about their new books across a wide variety of philosophical topics and areas. Today's interview is with Carlos Montemayor, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at San Francisco State University, about his new book, Minding Time, A Philosophical and Theoretical Approach to the Psychology of Time, from Brill. The philosophy of time has a variety of subtopics that are of great general as well as philosophical interest, such as the nature of time, the possibility of time travel, and the nature of tensed language. Montemayor focuses on the question, how do we represent time? That is, how is temporal information represented in biological creatures such as ourselves? He argues that traditional discussions of the specious present, in fact, confuse two sorts of representations of the present. Instead, empirical evidence points to a two-phase model, the sensorial present and the phenomenal present. The first is a non-conscious, multimodal, integrated simultaneity window that is closely tied to our biological clocks and which informs our sensory motor systems. The second is the rich conscious experience of succession or passage of time that does not obey the same metric constraints. In this richly detailed study, Montemayor blends empirical research on biological timekeeping mechanisms and psychological measures of simultaneity judgments with philosophical accounts of mental representation and consciousness. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, hello, Carlos. Oh, hi, Kerry. Hi. Glad to have you on New Books in Philosophy. It's great to, to uh, be here, and uh, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very happy. Well, it's it's a very interesting book. Um, I've been actually doing a number of books on various aspects of time, you know, temporal, uh, you know, temporal propositions, and uh, this particular book in the psychology of time, the representation of time, 
mm-hmm. um, and I'd like to do others. Um, so it's it's a very interesting the whole area, philosophical area, talking about time uh, is very interesting. And, and your book focuses on a particularly you know interesting question of of how do we represent time. Um, so let me before we get into the actual you know body of the book, um, maybe you could give us a little bit of introductory information about uh, yourself, how you, how you came to philosophy, and how you came to this particular topic. Uh, sure, definitely. Uh, so I started uh, out getting really interested in uh, just mental representation in general, uh, how that happens, uh, sort of traditional views of. Uh, different ways of accounting for the content of mental representation and then different issues so I, I as, as, as you as you well known uh, as you well know very quickly you get swamped into other uh, problems like what is the phenomenal character of experience what is the relationship between that and uh, mental representations and what is the relationship between mental representations and, and just representations in general like scientific representations and so on um, so I, I was always interested in that I mean I, I, I uh, was also interested in other issues before I, I started doing philosophy like uh, uh, I studied law and I was interested in the problem of value and, and human rights and so on but nothing really interested me as much as, as this issue of what is a representation and particularly a mental representation and of course, uh, it's a, a very old problem and a very traditional problem in philosophy uh, to account for what uh, what exactly and what precisely happens when we uh, grasp a proposition or we represent the world in a certain way. And then I realized that um, the space and time representation were uh, incredibly fascinating to me. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be close to people who worked uh, uh, on these areas in psychology, uh, uh, people that did uh, experiments on, or that still do experiments in perceptual visual attention and uh, sort of mechanisms for timekeeping. Um, and so I was very interested in, in trying to understand uh, the philosophical aspects of what they were doing. And uh, sort of isolate, because as you were mentioning, there are many problems related to time, uh, and they're all very interesting. One of them is what is the nature of time in physics, for example, or what is the nature of time in general? Another one is what is the uh, propositional uh, account, what what kind of propositional account of tense can we give in language? Uh, That's another very interesting issue. And then there's this problem that I wanted to isolate, uh, which is what I ended up doing in the book, which is how can a- any creature that represents time uh, do that? And, and what are the mechanisms underlying time representation? Are those independent uh, from language uh, or, or from the language capacity? Uh, and is, is there a way to isolate temporal representation from other representations, for example, the representation of causality or the representation of agency or, or, or the self? Uh, and so that's how I ended up uh, working on this. So I've I've uh, characterized your the explanandum of your book as you know how do we represent time exactly. Um, so it, um, maybe you want to 
I don't know if you want to clarify that a little bit further in terms of its relation to some of the other debates, you know, uh, the more famous maybe debates on the A theory versus the B theory or presentism versus eternalism. Yes, absolutely. And that's a that's a, uh, a very good question because the way I started uh, the project was uh, I wanted to engage a, a bit more with the debate in metaphysics. I uh, quickly realized that it, it was just too ambitious to do that um, because the debate in metaphysics, uh, the particularly the debate between the A theory, the, the theory that says that there is an objective, uh, uh, there is something objectively unique about the present moment, and, and so uh, there's always a, an objectively sensitive, a sensible answer to the question, what moment is present? So there's a theory that says, that, that defends that view, the A theory, and then there's the alternative view, the B theory, that says that's, that's, that's false. There's no objective present, and there's no unique, dire- uh, there's sort of no um, objective passage of time. And then what they say, that, that, that this is how uh, I... I uh, I got interested in, in these debates from the representational side of things. What the B theory says is that the passage of time is an illusion. And of course, illusions are uh, the realm, uh, I mean, they fall within the uh, domain of analysis of psychology. And it's interesting that within this metaphysical debate, all of a sudden, this psychological claim gets made mm-hmm. and, and becomes central. Right. right. It, uh, so I wanted to understand, even if it's an illusion. I mean, regardless of the of what happens uh, in terms of the physical reality of time, we need an account of even if it's illusory, even if uh, it's not entirely. Uh, carving nature at its joints, as, as people say, there must be an explanation of how we represent time. And and, uh, and that's how this fits a little bit within that uh, debate. Of, although, of course, I don't end up saying anything uh, particular about uh, uh, metaphysics, but that's how it fits within the broader debate. So your, your account is consistent with us being, you know, uh, all of our beliefs about time being completely false, but that's just not, you know, that's not relevant to your concerns. Well, I, I, I think the so so one aspect of the problem uh, uh, is that you need to have certain constraints to represent time, and those constraints cannot just be merely sort of subjective. Uh, dispositional constraints and I try to explain in the book that there must be some objective uh, basis for for time representation but you're right that it is compatible with what the B theorist says because the B theorist wants truth makers for uh, propositions about simultaneity or succession for example mm-hmm. uh, and they believe that there are such relations of succession and simultaneity they just deny that there is this objective passage of time and all I need to give an account of uh, the objective basis for uh, the representation of time are those relations. I mean, I do end up saying something that is a bit controversial, which is that these relations of succession of simultaneity are not something we really experience uh, when we have the phenomenology of time. But uh, a lot of a lot of this information processing happens unconsciously, 
and and uh, there's a ton of time uh, uh, keepers that are not even representational. So, um, but yeah, to answer your question, that's that's how I think it's com- my, what I say in the book is in principle compatible with the two major views on the nature of time, the A theory and and the B theory. Uh, I think that uh, that doesn't really. Uh, I mean, so for example, if 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 all propositions regarding the passage of time are, are false, uh, that is uh, a bit of orthogonal to what I, uh, I do in in the book. Okay. Yeah. Um, so at the, at the very end, I saw a nice. You 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 write that what one needs to successfully and reliably represent time. Um, are clocks and simultaneity judgments. And that was a nice, very simple and um, precise way of, you know, summing up, you know, basically the work of the book. And so you begin with a discussion of clocks, of of timekeepers, um, Mm -hmm. and then you proceed into, you know, questions of the nature of mental representation, and then you, you know, proceed at the end to this, to what you call your two-phase model Mm-hmm. Of, of the present, of how we represent the present. So, um, I think let's let's start with the clocks. Um, you go Excellent. into you know a lot of very interesting detail about um, the different two different kinds of clocks, two different times of of, of timekeepers, mm-hmm. um, the various advantages and disadvantages, and then of course some that you call semi hybrid timekeepers. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you could say a bit about about these different kinds of timekeepers and then our biological, right, the the circadian clock and then the the stopwatch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I think this is this is what uh I found the uh, most fascinating about uh the psychological literature is the 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 depth and detail of uh the studies that uh psychologists and biologists have Done. It's just. It's just. Uh, it's actually breathtaking. When I started reading, it's just beautiful uh, research, and it's it's uh, it's really rich. So the um, in in that uh, section of the book, what I try to explain is that the sort of anecdotal evidence that animals were great timekeepers, and in particular bees and insects and. Uh, how uh, and then sort of the, the the mere fact that animals navigate in, imply that they have rich spatial temporal representation needed a lot of uh, evidential basis to to really become uh, a precise statement concerning uh, time representation and, and sort of biological mechanisms to to keep track of time. And but the the, the debate of what exactly. It, um, constrains a clock or what is a clock is actually a debate that that uh, started a little bit more uh, in physics. Uh, and uh, so I talk a lot about Reichenbach because he, in his book, uh, The Philosophy of Space and Time, explains in, 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 in a lot of detail and with great clarity that a clock is really just a process. And that's... Uh, it, it has to be a physical process. And just like you need, uh, as, as Einstein realized... Uh, rigid rods to measure space and then uh, certain assumptions about energy and forces and, and so on. You need units of time to measure time. And those units of time are not ideas, they're not concepts, they are aspects of processes, so aspects of natural processes. So uh, 
he has this this discussion on why the the the, the daily cycle of uh, day and night, uh, the rotation of the Earth on its own axis, is is actually a great clock because it is it has a constant rate, it repeats itself, it's stable, it's reliable, and more importantly, you can divide it into units, and those units uh, have uh, the metric aspects that you need to guarantee. Uh, reliable measurements of time, namely uh, intervals can be compared and they are invariant uh, with these comparisons. They are the basis, for example, for additive properties of these measurements. So twice an interval will always be twice an interval uh, because the units are are, are, are uh, uh, precise and, and, and the rate of, uh, of the passage of, of time in the clock is, is, is kept constant. Uh, so the constraints that you need to, to guarantee uh, precise time measurement are exactly the same constraints that you need uh, to measure time physically with physical clocks. Um, so those constraints were found in, in, in some biological uh, uh, systems. And then actually the circadian clock, which is this clock that Reichenbach talks about as as, as uh, a very reliable clock that guarantees these metric constraints on, on intervals and uh, uh, other uh, constraints uh, that clocks must satisfy. Uh, this clock was found throughout uh, biological uh, organisms, the circadian clock. It was found, obviously, in human beings, and it has a big impact on uh, our sense of time. Uh, but one interesting question is what makes a clock uh, so once you have a reliable clock and, and uh, they have different advantages so for example in, when you represent time with a circadian clock or a, a cyclical clock you lose track of uh, certain things so you you, um, you lose t- track for example of uh, when uh, something started and when something ends or you need to impose a representation on the clock to, to do that Whereas if you have an interval clock, uh, let's say an hourglass, you flip the hourglass, you know exactly uh, which was the beginning moment and which is the last moment, right? So it's empty, uh, uh, the, the bottom is empty, and all of a sudden the, the, the top of the clock is empty, and that indicates the end of the interval. Uh, so these advantages of this and disadvantages... Uh, when people started uh, designing clocks, for example, the atomic clock that is used in physics, they use the the, the cycles of a, of, a, of an atom to mark the pace of a pacemaker, and so it is an incredibly precise clock. Uh, so psychologists started asking, what exactly happens when we measure time? What are the clocks that we have? And as it turns out, we have two clocks: one one cyclical, which is the circadian clock. Uh, and it's uh, very precise. It emulates the, the rotation of the Earth on its own axis. And we have another clock, which works a little bit more like an hourglass. Um, and the experiments show that the representations actually have... So, so this, these are not merely mechanical clocks. We, we don't merely biologically uh, respond to these clocks, although, of course, they are part of our biology. We actually have mental representations of time that interface with space and with other uh, magnitudes like rate or uh, uh, 
density. Uh, and these representations are based on uh, these uh, on the neural processes that underlie the, the circadian clock and the stopwatch. So uh, it, it took a lot of ingenuity and time <laughs> and research to figure out which animals represent time, mm-hmm. uh, why that those representations are really representations. They're not merely biological uh, processes. And so, for example, why, although plants have a circadian clock, in an obvious way they cannot represent time, why uh, uh, insects have a circadian clock and besides using the, that circadian clock for many biological processes like gene expression, they also use that clock to navigate, which is a, a deeply representational uh, activity. So um, I don't know if, if this uh, answers a little bit what your, your question. It was a very rich question and uh, very exciting to me because uh, that's the part of, uh, uh, of the book where I really... Uh, realize sort of the, the gigantic amount of research that had to be done to, to corroborate these uh, capacities to represent time, and, and, and in particular the existence of these two clocks. Well, I mean, it was it was a surprise to me that you, you talked about the, the stopwatch. I mean, every, we've all heard about the circadian clock, you know, the superchiasmatic nucleus, um, but, but I had not heard about the stopwatch. Um, and I take it we do not have a um, – there's no particular structure that is the stopwatch, right? It's just a, a process, some some sort of interval process, right? Yes, exactly. So, so um, the as you said, the, 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 the suprachiasmatic nucleus has been uh, confirmed uh, to be the, the locus of the circadian clock. And uh, it, is, it is pretty uncontroversial that it exists. And you're right that the stopwatch is a little bit more controversial. Because uh, the models that psychologists have proposed turn out to be a bit naive. So they they literally think that the process that the brain instantiates uh, when when the brain measures intervals. So what what is not controversial is that the brain does two things. It can represent time in a a, uh, sort of for longer periods, uh, uh, even even periods of... uh, hours uh, or, or several hours in terms of uh, circadian clock representation. So insects can do this. But then for shorter intervals, uh, birds, but also humans, have a, the capacity to, to uh, emulate intervals. And this is from seconds to minutes in a very precise way. And they can abstract and add these intervals, uh, clearly having representations of these intervals. Uh, and these are uh, this is important because the resolution of the uh, of the clock is finely tuned to relevant intervals. Uh, so, for example, replenishing of flower nectar in, uh, for birds uh, is one of those intervals. Uh, predicting when the light is going to turn green at a stop is one of those intervals in the case of humans when they drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for this t- type of process, the, the, the um, representation of time is not cyclical. Uh, rather, it is, it is uh, interval-like or linear, but in, in for very sh- short intervals. And so the models that the, the, the famous model proposed by, by Gibbon uh, was uh, called the pacemaker. And uh, 
Warren Mack uh, also studied a lot of, of, of the neural correlates of this pacemaker, and it is believed that it's deeply related to attention. Uh, there's a cortical area that, that uh, uh, is supposed to be involved in this process. Uh, but you're right that it is probably uh, inaccurate. It, it's misleading to call it a stopwatch because the image that comes to mind is that the, the something is sticking inside the brain uh, as, <laughs> as if an hourglass uh, uh, was uh, getting filled. But something like that, something analogous to that happens in the brain. That's the idea. That is very unlike the circadian clock. And it it is important uh, for a lot of behaviors. It's very important for simultaneity judgments, for example, cross-simultaneity. And it's also very important for uh, actions that uh, the motor system has to frame uh, in, in a linear way rather than uh, in, a, in, a, in a longer sort of temporal frame uh, where the circadian clock could, could be used. Okay, so, um, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to, to ask more about about the clocks, but um, I, I would like to turn to the nature of temporal representation um, so that we can get to a lot of the material on on simultaneity judgments because that, that too was very, was fascinating. Um so both timekeepers uh, uh-huh. produce representations of time um, and somewhat in, in, in different ways, right? One is periodic and one is, is, is interval. And they both yeah. produce them, these representations, uh, for use by the sensory motor system. Exactly. Okay. So um, one thing I guess I wasn't, uh, wasn't clear about is whether they contribute to a single representation or whether they contribute uh, distinct representations. Um, and, uh, and then furthermore, just what sort of notion of representation are you using to explain the contents of each of, each of these representations or the, the one combination representation? Uh, yeah, so, so this is a, a, a very, very interesting uh, topic. One of the most, uh, one of uh, the main motivations I had to work on this uh, issue, the representation of time, is that time representation seems to be really, really unique um, because it, it doesn't involve the typical uh, symbolic representation. So one thing that I that I uh, uh, say in the book is that. Uh, Representations of time are approximate; they are analog, uh, if, if in, a, in a sort of philosophical sense of analog, uh, which means that uh, they are dense, and you can always be more precise, ever more precise, or uh, in, or, or change the scale and, and lose precision to gain generality and so on. So, um, in that sense, both uh, clocks produce the same type of representation in the sense that they are analog, approximate, uh, they're not uh, exclusively symbolic. If they are interfaced with symbolic representations, uh, that is not uh, what what underlies, for example, navigation. So the, what underlies navigation is this more approximate analog way of representing uh, uh, time. Uh, but there's, there's a sense in which the, the representations differ really uh, uh, importantly. And the way, for example, psychologists like Galistel explain it is that the, the mathematical 
way of understanding the structure of the representation of the circadian clock is in terms of the angles of a circle. So uh, that's one of the explanations of how uh, insects navigate. They use uh, the solar ephemeris function and the angle of the sun to compute location. So they literally translate readings of the cycle of the circadian clock into spatiotemporal locations that they use for sun compass navigation. And so this is clearly a representational process, right? And one of the questions is, why is this not just a mere response to, to, the, to light, for example, mm-hmm. or, the, or the cycle of the sun? It, uh, and the answer I give in the book uh, is that it cannot be just that kind of uh, sort of biological-based reaction because computing the solar ephemeris function based on the circadian clock really requires several representations that need to be cognitively integrated uh, in terms of a common cause. It, it obviously is not a, a prepositional language that the insect is, is using, uh, or, or the insect is not really uh, deducing conclusions from premises. Rather, what, what the insect is doing, um, according to this research, is mapping different representations. One of them is the circadian clock reading with positions that uh, the insect needs to locate itself in a map. And so this process uses several representations. It cognitively integrates these representations, and that means that the insect is capable of representing time in terms of its circadian clock. Uh, unlike that representation, the representation of the, uh, the produced by the stopwatch, for example, the representation of time produced by the stopwatch is not really model. I mean, if you want to express it mathematically, you really don't need this... Uh, angle-based representation of the, for example, the, the, the degrees of a circle, but rather the structure of the line in mathematics. And interestingly, Kant and Schopenhauer and, and I mean, other philosophers has had this view that our, the origin of uh, the uh, mathematical continuum, the, the real numbers, uh, is a representation of time, right? And so this, this very much goes... Uh, along with that idea. So the the idea is the interval clock produces a representation of time that is linear. Uh, it is uh, it has these um, uh, inverse correlation uh, with respect to uh, the specificity of the measurement. So if it's a very short interval clock, it is very precise with respect to that short interval, but then it loses. Uh, resolution as the intervals increase. But the idea is there is no limit with respect to how long or, or, or small the interval is in principle, right? I mean, there are biological limits, but in terms of the representation, uh, the the uh, time is represented approximately and in terms of segments of a, of a line. And so you can express that in terms of numbers, in the real line. And of course, that doesn't mean that we literally represent intervals in terms of real numbers. What it means is that that's one way of uh, expressing the structure Mm -hmm. of the representation produced by the stopwatch, just like the circle uh, and the mathematical relations among the angles of a circle express the structure of the representation of the representations of time produced by by the circadian clock. 
so what we've been using the term representation, you know, obviously quite a bit. Um, so maybe you can say something about um, the notion of representation, you know, or mental representation, I suppose. Yeah. Um, uh, that you that you defend in the book. It's I mean it's it's more or less I take it a standard sort of teleoinformational um, account. Um, um, so maybe we could say a word about um, uh, you know the the nature of the these representations in the in the mental representational um, sense. You know how how they get their content and and how they how we know they they misrepresent. Yes, I mean that, that's a, that's a, a, a great question. It's a tricky question because uh, the teleological notion of a representation. So the, the, that is, uh, for example, Millikan's idea that the uh, representation, uh, anything that has a, 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 any process that has a, a structure in which ends are. Uh, Interrelated with means in the behavior of a creature uh, shows that 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 there's uh, some representational content that you can express in terms of uh, the theological function. Namely, there is a goal that the creature wants to achieve, and uh, a condition for the creature to succeed is some sort of content that the creature is representing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that turns out to be a tricky notion because plants do this, right? So, uh, right. and I, uh, plants have uh, uh, a function that they fulfill. For example, they 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 have some some form of uh, uh, several uh, uh, procedures by means of which they equilibrate themselves and control water absorb- absorption, uh, solar energy absorption and so on these are all goals that the plant uh, meets by uh, satisfying certain constraints they're all uh, objective environmental constraints depending on the position of the sun and and the position of the plant and so on and it seems to use the clock right it seems plants heavily use the circadian clock to do these things so you you look at a sunflower the sunflower is it turns and follows the sun, yeah. keeps track of the sun. And so, so then the question is, well, that conception of representation seems to prove too much or seems to be inadequate, but that because now we're attributing representations to plants. And so I, I, I have a way of avoiding that problem. But did you want to say No, something? Go, go ahead. Because I, I'm, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so so I think that is that is definitely a, a problem uh, because then you get in, in, into further problems like when you see a, a the tree uh, the the trunk of a tree, it seems to be keeping track of the years, right? right? With the tree rings, but obviously the tree is not representing time in a sort of very very uh, obvious way. So what I what I say is they're not even these these processes that the plants uh, are are going through or they're, they're uh, performing are clearly not even representational. Uh, they are in, encoding information, but the, in order to, and, and actually Millikan says a little bit about this, in order for a, that process, a theological process to count as a representational process, the information needs to be used in a way. Mm-hmm. Right? So it needs a user or an agent that reads the information uh, and then that becomes a representation. So t- tree trunks are not representations that the tree uses. They are representations that humans use to keep track of years. And um, so that has to happen with the clocks, 
just merely responding to environmental features automatically and causally is not enough to give you a representational relation. You need a way to use that information. So, for example, insects use that information to navigate uh, and to compute uh, uh, information for some compass navigation. Uh, Birds use information from their stopwatch to compute rates of uh, nectar refilling in, in, in flowers. And so that's how you get rid of this uh, objection that, that it's too weak. The right. teleological representation account is too weak to, to explain time clock representation. Now, there's a further problem that, uh, for example, Tyler Birch talks about, that even if you have representational processes, uh, if they are too isolated or, or too subpersonal, uh, they they may not count as representations because, uh, for example, they may be too close to the to the proximal stimuli, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about the retina, are the encodings that happen in the in the visual uh, cortex representations? Well, they are. If you if you if you think that uh, anything that maps information in a systematic way and tracks information from the environment is a representation, then those mappings count as a representation. Mm-hmm. So a way of avoiding that problem, which is different from the automatic response to the environment problem, mm-hmm. is to have this further constraint that I, that, I, that I say the representations of the clock definitely satisfy, which is that the, the um, representer, the user of the representation, or the uh, mental uh, cognitive agent, mm-hmm in this case, insects or humans or birds or whatever, need to use this representation at the personal level, not just at at a very isolated uh, uh, level of information processing, Mm -hmm. but in a way that deeply informs their behavior, right? And also in a way in which environmental particulars are uh, represented as such. So, so intervals of time are represented as interval, uh, intervals of time. And not only that, they can be attributed to a particular event, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and research shows that insects, uh, birds, and, and, and uh, uh, other creatures can do this. Okay, so um, once we have sort of a notion of, you know, timekeeping and then representation, um, you sort of pull it all together um, in a, a, another, you know, very interesting discussion of uh, simultaneity judgments um, across a number of different sense modalities, and then, um, you know, how these come together in a multimodal sensory or simultaneity window. Um, and so you, you end up with uh, what you call a two-phase model of the present. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'd like to kind of you know, go through the different parts of that because, you know, each of the parts was, was pretty, was, was interesting. And I I think maybe we can start with, um, with some of the, the simul, the, the modality specific simultaneity windows or that, you know, that we have the, the judgments we have about, you know, when we've just, you know, seen one thing as opposed to seen two things, um, or heard two, a one thing as opposed to heard two things. Yes, definitely. Um, so this is uh, another area of research, uh, all of which is, is is based on human subjects. Obviously, I mean this is this is a uh, uh, research on 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 sense specific simultaneity windows, uh, and what I mean the the really interesting. Uh, so there's there's two aspects of this uh, research that that. Uh, 
makes it particularly fascinating. So uh, going back to the constraints on, on, on precise time measurements, this is just, these are just physical constraints, right, uh, that, that physicists use all the time to, to measure time or the time of certain events. You need the um, constancy, the unit of time constraints, the units must be all the same to have reliable time measurements. The rate at which time passes needs to be constant because then that's a, that's a requirement for the units to be the same length. But then a further constraint is how do you know that given two different events, uh, whether or not they happen at the same time, right? That's a deeply different question from uh, just keeping track of time uh, based on, on units of time because this, mesh, this question requires you to have a way of knowing whether or not uh, two distant events in space uh, are happening at the same time. So, so in a way, you kind of need either two clocks or some sort of judgment uh, to determine that. And uh, what is interesting about what Reichenbach says about this is that that judgment, just like the the, the decision that something is uh, the right unit for time, is a, a bit arbitrary, right? Mm -hmm. So it just needs to satisfy the right constraints. It needs to give you precise measurements. They can never be more precise. You can always be more precise and so on. That means there's no definitive uh, standards. But uh, you need these to have uh, obviously uh, time measurements, right? So and and animals and humans need this as well. So you need, in order to comprehend uh, what someone is saying, you need to know uh, what uh, uh, sounds are simultaneous with the uh, uh, words that are coming from someone's mouth. To play tennis, you need to know when a ball is hitting and at, uh, whether or not the ball is hitting at the same time that you're moving your arm, and so on and so on. So. This is a different problem, and the brain cannot use, and this is what is super interesting, the, the brain cannot just use the clocks to solve this problem, right? Mm -hmm. Because the clocks are just ticking. <laughs> uh, they are very useful, but they cannot by themselves tell the brain whether two events are happening at the same time. Now, what complicates things is that the events that are happening outside the brain are coming into the brain through different sense signals, and these signals are coming at different speeds. Right. So light is coming at a very, very, very fast speed. Uh, and sound is not coming at uh, such fast, fast speed. And the proprioceptive system uh, has different thresholds and so on. So the trick that the brain uh, evolves to solve this problem is it has different thresholds for simultaneity. So the threshold for simultaneity in audition is very, very small compared to that of vision. Maybe that's because of the speeds of light and, and, and uh, uh, sound. And so in the auditory modality, very quickly you know uh, that uh, two events are not simultaneous because the simultaneity window is very, very small. I think it's two uh, milliseconds. And uh, that changes in vision and that changes uh, in the haptic modality. And so this creates a problem, right? Because uh, if two events could be simultaneous in the auditory modality, but not simultaneous in the visual modality, and that's because the windows are different, the window for simultaneity 
envision is larger than the, the window for simultaneity in audition, then how does the brain compensate for these uh, discrepancies, right? Uh, and so, so that's where I, I start uh, uh, proposing that there, the, uh, there has to be a cross-model window for uh, sensory simultaneity that uh, sort of uh, smoothens out these discrepancies. Otherwise, it would be very difficult to operate, right? You would, you would have uh, simultaneity judgments from audition telling you this is simultaneous, but what you're seeing is not simultaneous, and we would operate in pretty schizophrenic ways, uh, time-wise, right? right? So, so the, 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 the bigger window, the cross-model window, is not only bigger in the sense that it smoothens out discrepancies between audition and vision and, and the haptic modality, it's also crucial to have a, a uh, sort of overall judgment of what is simultaneous periods. Um, and this happens unconsciously. Uh, that's, that's what I say in, in the book. We don't really quite experience this. It's, it's a decision that is made for us in a way that is similar to syntax processing. So if you think about syntax processing, you're not really aware of uh, how is it that you're parsing the information uh, that, that you encode syntactically right. when you uh, speak a language. Of course, there, there are aspects of language that you're conscious of. You're aware of the meaning of a word or the imagery that a word uh, evokes, mm -hmm. but you're not really conscious of the syntax uh, processing that underlies language, uh, the language capacity. You're not even uh, conscious of the articulatory code that depends on that syntax processing. So something like that happens with this simultaneous judgment. And so that's the first component. This cross-model window is the first component of this proposal that I that I that I make in the book. Of, of the two-phase model of the present. So let me stop here and see if, if you have questions about yeah. this first. Yeah. So at this point, we're talking about the what you call the sensorial present. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, so maybe just to uh, just to step back a little bit and then and then roll forward. Um, so you know, philosophers will 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 discuss you know the specious present. You know the 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 briefest moment that we can experience you know, succession or change. And um, they'll ask about um, the relationship between this specious present, you know, the, what we're experiencing and the indexical now, yeah. right, or something. Or they'll talk about the unity of, of consciousness and, you know, the present, you know, what's, what is now present to me in my consciousness. Um, and, and so on your view, this is, this is kind of confused because it's, it's in a sense, it's, it's um, it's mushing together two distinct uh, presents that we actually uh, re represent, or that we that we. Um, well, I don't want to use the word experience because one of them is not, at least not uh, always experienced. It, I suppose it can be, but it it isn't typically. Um, just as we don't typically experience. Or, or we're not typically conscious of, of processing syntax, but but you can interrupt things and then suddenly make that, you know, yes, you make can. that yeah. But um, so it's not a, it's it's not necessarily unconscious, mm -hmm. um, but it, it, for the most part, it's it is. Um, yep. So so you've got this sensorial present that we've sort of been talking about, 
and then you've got this um, the phenomenal present and yeah. they're traditional you know discussions of the specious present have sort of mushed these things together and you're trying to to distinguish them so yeah. so maybe we can you know to go back to where we were with the specious present or sorry the um, the sensorial present as a rep- the representation of this multi-sensory integration window you know simultaneity window mm-hmm. um uh Okay, yeah, so then. we've that that's the one the one sense, right? Uh, there's a representation there, uh, and that's for sensory motor coordination. Exactly. Um, and then there's the other one, which is what you call the phenomenal mm-hmm. uh, present. Yes. So, so maybe you could say. So l- the question I want to before we get to the phenomenal present first, I wanted to ask. We were talking about the 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 uh, this integrated uh, multi multimodal window that sort of um, encompasses all the different simultaneity simultaneity windows of of the distinct um, sense modalities. And wh- one of the things that you said there that I thought was really interesting was it's not that it's not just that this sensorial present this this multimodal integration window um, somehow integrates all the different senses despite their different simultaneity windows but also that it there's an ordering that goes on that gets imposed mm-hmm. on these you know because so you've got different simultaneities um, and that of course means that things are gonna be presented in a different different order and yes. um, so maybe you could say something about what happens, you know, to get all these simultaneity windows to to integrate um, and get an order, and then also why the the mechanism that orders them is itself, you know, is sort of not a temporal me- mechanism. Yes. Yeah, so um, uh, the 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 reason why I think it's 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 bad, and and that's you're right that I I, I say in the book that it's uh, there's a bit of amb- ambiguity in the literature when they talk about the sensorial the species present, and I think uh, we should uh, that ambiguity should be avoided because the species present uh, uh, involves these two radically different uh, cognitive processes. One of them involves ex- conscious experience; the other one in- involves. Uh, sensory model representation for uh, of time for for uh, coordination, um, and 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 this a very clear way to see that is that the constraints that any measurement of time needs to satisfy to count as as a, as a good time measurement are all satisfied by the sensorial present, right? So it satisfies the units of time constraint and the. Uh, uh, uniformity of rate constraint by having good clocks, the circadian clock and the and the stopwatch. What is a good clock? Is a clock that satisfies those constraints, right? So, it also satisfies the the simultaneity constraint by having good mechanisms to detect these uh, uh, the 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 synchrony of of, of events. Uh, by means of these windows that the brain has, right? Um, and so a good way to think of these windows is as, as a hierarchy of smaller windows that get integrated into the sensorial present. But then once you have the judgment that two events are simultaneous, 
you need the clocks to know whether once you know that something is simultaneous, uh, that is also simultaneous with another event or if time has passed between that event and uh, another event. So you need not only simultaneity judgments, but also uh, a way to represent duration, mm-hmm. right? In, in most debates on the species present, this is never even mentioned. Mm-hmm. But it is absolutely fundamental to navigate. And I think what happens, uh, or at least this is the, this is why I, I I think the sensorial present is part of is 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 uh, it is a it is a component of this model that I call the two phase model. But it's also good to think of it as part of of the uh, measurements that we need to navigate and coordinate time. So it it gives the crucial information that two events are simultaneous. But then, in order for you to really operating time, you not only need these simultaneity judgments, but as you were saying, you need to order them in terms of duration. And the only reliable way of doing that is by interfacing the clock with the, I'm sorry, the simultaneity judgments from the cross model window to the clock, such that the moments, the intervals of time somehow correlate with the simultaneity chunks of millisecond, let's let's say they're uh, uh, smaller than 250 milliseconds. Those chunks mm-hmm. in which everything is simultaneous, right? Yeah. Anything anything below that window, the brain is going to register simultaneous. Those chunks are going to correlate with the intervals of time that uh, the clocks and, uh, are going to measure. Mm-hmm. So, so that imposes an ordering automatically in the in the sensory motor system because you have a good clock that it's it's uh, getting information information from this uh, systematic comp- uh, uh, computation of simultaneity and and so that ordering I, I say is also an ordering that occurs without our being aware of it it doesn't really involve conscious experiences mm-hmm. what it really involves, is representations from the clocks, mm-hmm. and they need to be representations, as, 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 as we mentioned before, not just uh, uh, biological processes or even cortical uh, mappings. And they also need to overlap with uh, simultaneity judgments. Uh, and so th- that, that gets all done uh, sort of uh, unconsciously uh, with uh, the systems to compute simultaneity and also with the clocks to give this very rich, uh, I uh, I mean, as I say in the book, it's a very rich space of possible uh, uh, actions. It gives you a configuration space of action because you know how to react to stimuli, uh, how, how to embed information temporally and so on. And so I think that needs to be clearly distinguished because when people talk about the species present, they say, oh, it's the smallest. Uh, One idea is is the smallest uh, amount of time in which something is present, Mm -hmm. but it's not point-like, right? It's not uh, not the Planck scale and it's not a millisecond. So that's species, right? Because it's not not point-like. Well, in that sense of species, this sensorial present is species because it's not... Is not point-like. It's not. It's not instant, instantaneous. Mm-hmm. It's a few milliseconds, right? 
but in a different sense, is not the species present that that many philosophers has have in mind because they they then start talking about experiences. So then they say, the species present is the shortest amount of time in which you experience a musical phrase. Well, that's clearly not mm-hmm. related to these much more precise simultaneity judgments that the sensory motor system makes, right? And so I, I think that ambiguity is best kept sort of. Uh, uh, clears by, I mean, is 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 much better if we disambiguate this term because then we can know what we're talking about when we when we say something is present, right? Right. So so, um, I mean, it's kind of like when people talk about the B theory in metaphysics and then introduce the notion of illusion, right? That yeah. that, that we that we started with. Well, illusion is is a, is a is a mental notion, and so. You're sort of off and running into a different direction, exactly. um, and the same thing here with experience. It seems like uh, when people start talk, if 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 philosophers start talking about the present um, in terms of a moment, you know, a, a temporal notion of some sort, and then say that we experience um, mm-hmm. for you, of course, that's that's already bringing in something else that isn't part of what uh, what explains the the. Um, the, the present as uh, as we judge you know sort of subconsciously exactly and, and if I could add something uh, that, I mean you're, you're completely right uh, and something that is important is for the brain to satisfy the, the, the all these constraints sort of the simultaneity judgment constraint and the other the passage of time constraint in terms of the rate and, and units of time constraint the brain doesn't need experiences to do this, right? Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, it would be us if the brain needed experiences to do this because what the brain needs is reliable timekeepers, mm-hmm. representations based on those timekeepers, and judgments in order to determine whether or not two events happen simultaneously. And that really has nothing to do with, with what the subject is experiencing experiencing, it has to do with satisfying this objective constraint. So it makes sense that the brain has these mechanisms operating in a very, very uh, motor-like way, sort of like the way we process syntax, because otherwise it would be difficult to satisfy them if we, if we had to have awareness in the mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's not, it's not that... that, that um, Awareness is irrelevant. Of course, awareness of time is a very, very deeply problematic issue. But it is irrelevant to satisfy these constraints. Well, let me, well we should talk about the phenomenal present, because that, that is where experience is, exactly. is, is critical. So maybe you can say a word about, about that and, and, uh, and then how these two are, are, are related to each other. Yeah, so, so I mean, the... Um, Probably, I mean, the, the term two-phase uh, model, uh, I mean, I came up with that term for lack of a better term, but the idea is that these simultaneity windows clearly are not operating on experiences, right? Mm-hmm. The the domain or the range of application of these windows is is really just, it's, it's mostly signals from the sense modalities. Uh, it cannot be the experience of smelling a flower or the experience of l- listening to a Beethoven symphony. So what is that? Right? That, that's where the uh, original 
uh, motivation uh, to talk about the species present came from, and at least if you read William James. But of course, these examples of listening to a musical phrase or the experience of uh, having anxiety and so on, these are typically uh, rich examples that uh, Husserl used and, and many other phenomenologies like Merleau-Ponty. So what is that? I think uh, we don't have a good theory of what that is. But what I say is that it has to be something radically different from the sensorial present. Uh, that's why I call it a, a, a two-phase model, because if, if se- uh, simultaneity information is used at all in the generation of this phenomenal present, it has to be used in a radically different way, sort of, sort of the way a phase transition happens, right? So, so the transition that water undergoes from solids to liquids is, is that kind of transition. There's a deep modification of, of the information. And the, the information is no longer structured in terms of simultaneity, judgment, and duration. It is rather information that integrates in a very, very unique way, sort of amalgamates different experiences into this very, very thick present moment, right? And so, so that's exactly the term, for example, Nick Humphrey uses to talk about this. He calls it the thick time of experience. And the, the reason why it's thick is because simultaneity and duration are completely relevant for this type of integration. What matters for this type of integration, and I think uh, uh, Tim Bain and, and Dave Chalmers calls this, call this uh, subsumption, this, uh, the relation responsible for this type of integration, is that in the phenomenal present, all experiences are integrated into a, an overall experience, which people also call a total experience. And in this total experience, there is the sense that all your, experience, all your experiences are present to you at once. But of course, this present, this notion of present to you is not really the notion of our simultaneous, our simultaneously encoded. Because this notion of presence which is a lot more elusive than the notion of simultaneity, involves the presence of anxiety plus the presence of the melody of a song plus the, plus the presence of your proprioceptive uh, experience of how your body is located and so on and so on and so on. And, uh, so that's, that's why I think that uh, one thing I say is we don't have a good account of that. Uh, and we, but but it's clearly different. One thing we can say safely about that kind of integration is that it is not really the type of integration that happens for uh, simultaneity, and that's what I call the yeah the sensorial present. So, um, so just to just to pursue this um, a little bit further. Um, so the phenomenal, but you do you do say that that the phenomenal present um, involves the experience of succession or of a passage, oh, yeah. passage of time, and and mm-hmm. and not just not just a succession of appearances, but actually an experience of of succession of time. Um, and uh, I thought maybe you could say something about that. And you you also say. Uh, you know, you do draw some Im- important distinctions, I think, between these two types of, of representations of the present um, in terms of the information, the sources, I think, of information that they that they integrate. Um, exactly. And the, the metric constraint, one, the phenomenal present does not have the metric constraint. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so maybe you could, could say a little bit about that. 
Yes, that, definitely. Um, uh, I, I would like to start with a metric constraint because it's a, a bit uh, a, a bit uh, less tricky. So, so, so if if you think about the metric constraints as the constraints on any time measurement, including time measurements in physics, those are satisfied by the sensorial present, right? The simultaneity windows plus plus the clocks. Now, if you think about how your current experience is integrated, right? Your experience of listening to me, uh, feeling what you're feeling, uh, the expectations that you're having, the thoughts that you're having, and so on, the imagery associated with those thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. Those don't seem to depend on those metric constraints, right? So they don't seem to, the, the integration of those experiences, even though you feel they're, they're passing in time, they don't seem to be fully uh, integrated based on whether they're simultaneous or not, or whether they are uh, happening at the same time, strictly speaking, in terms of which window is operating and so on. So it's not only that that the integration seems to be metrically unconstrained, or at least not metrically, not reduced to the metric constraints of typical time measurements, but you're right. Also, one, one thing that is important to emphasize that, that I say at the end of the book is that the sources of information for phenomenal integration are a lot larger than, than, than the, uh, what the sensorial uh, present does in terms of detecting signals, right? So you have that kind of integration in dreams. So when you're dreaming, your experiences are being integrated phenomenally. You're, you're having visual experiences. You're, you're experiencing color. You're experiencing emotions. But your med- your sensory motor system is is uh, turned off, right? You're just lying in bed. Mm. Uh, so that kind of that's that's what I mean by metrically unconstrained. It's, they they seem to be different uh, in terms of the the constraints that the, this uh, processes for integrating experiences are are uh, uh, trying to satisfy. So I, I think that that is a bit clearer than the issue, which is a lot more tricky. But but I'm glad you you brought it up of the difference between uh, a succession of experiences. Now, notice that we're talking about experiences, right? It's not just a succession of events or a succession of signals that the brain is is, uh, uh, detecting, but a succession of experiences. The difference between that, the succession of experiences, and the experience of succession, right? I think that is a very, very tricky issue. I I, I say uh, very sort of tentative things about that. what I think is, is, is safe to say is that uh, it is true that when you talk about how we experience the passage of time, not just measure the passage of time with the clocks, but experience it, that that experience cannot be captured in terms of many, many experiences having at different times an order in terms of simultaneous relations, right? Sort of as as in the way a movie fra- uh, 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 t- frames of, of pictures create the illusion that something is moving, right? Mm-hmm. I think the the experience of passage, because of certain experiences like like the experience of anxiety or the experience of uh, or, or emotions in general, cannot be just reduced to to successions, right? You, there, there's something unique about the experience of succession. Uh, and and that's where I say that 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 sort of aspect of our experience of the passage of time favors certain views that get uh, called uh, in in the literature on on temporal consciousness 
as the extensional model. And the extensional model, what, what one aspect of the extensional model, there's several uh, different things about it, but one aspect of it is that is this claim that um, uh, experiencing the passage of time cannot be reduced to vignettes of successive experiences. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, we've been talking about time for for over an hour, <laughs> so I, I think actually we we are running out of time. Um, so let me just uh, there's there's a lot more to discuss, but um, unfortunately um, uh, this this is an interval, and yeah. so the interval is coming to its 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 natural conclusion. Um, and the natural conclusion here is just um, do, what is your do you have uh, a, a follow-up project on this, or what are you working on on next? Is there some, something completely different, or are you going to follow this up with, with other research related? Yes, I actually am very interested in, uh, in this uh, issue that you mentioned, that uh, it, is, it is fascinating that B-theory is uh, part of, of their claim, or of actually not part, a very central claim they make is that the uh, passage of time is an illusion. Uh, so I'm very interested in in, in trying to uh, really try to get a grip on that claim. What exactly do they mean, and how to account for that illusion, and sort of uh, keep exploring this issue of uh, what kind of relation you need to to uh, integrate experiences uh, and and how it's independent from from the metric of the sensorial present. So I'm working uh, now on 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 the sort of uh, on that kind of uh, on, yeah, one project involves the illusion of passage. Uh, I'm I'm also very interested in just conscious awareness in general, and this uh, uh, type of relation that integrates experiences into a phenomenal whole. That uh, uh, I think is 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 not only gaining uh, momentum uh, as a as an important philosophical topic, but I, psychologists are are also very interested in this, and I. Uh, I'm very interested in, in it too. Well, great. So, uh, well, thank you very much. And oh, thank you, uh, Carrie. This I, was this was great. Great talking to you. Yeah, great talking to you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Carlos Montemayor about his new book, Minding Time: A Philosophical and Theoretical Approach to the Psychology of Time, just out from Brill. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.